Hello, Citizen Dame fans. Thank you so much for your patience. We've had a bunch of delays getting this episode to you. It's here. It's got some audio problems, and I really sincerely apologize for that. We tried our best to fix it, and, you know, sometimes you just kind of have to let it go and move on. So thank you so much for your continued support, and I hope that you enjoy this. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. All these girls going to be in the league? Hello, gorgeous. Female Fight Club. All men must die, but we are not men. Damn it, Christy! What do you think happened to Karen? Lauren. Girl, her name is Kimberly. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Citizen Dame, the podcast where four and today five awesome ladies get together and talk about everything that's happening in the world of Hollywood. Good, bad, ugly, really, really ugly, and sometimes really, really good. Um, Today, we are on episode 27. I am Karen Peterson, and with me, as always, is Kristen Lopez. Hey, hey. Lauren Humphreys-Brooks. Hello. Kimberly Pierce. Hello. And we are joined by a special guest, and we are very excited to have Valerie Complex with us. What's up, everybody? So, um, let's start off with Valerie. Why don't you just tell everybody a little bit about yourself? I'm sorry. I sound like I have such a deep voice this morning. I just woke up from a very hard sleep, but I hope it's sexy enough for everybody out there uh, that's interested in listening. Um, But a little bit about me. I am a film critic, journalist, and screenplay writer um, on Rotten Tomatoes. You can find me on Twitter at Valerie Complex, all one word, and on Instagram at Valerie underscore Complex. Uh, Most of the time you'll find me arguing with other people from film Twitter about various things uh, that, you know, encompass diversity or women's issues. You'll see me talking about something if you're interested in getting involved in the discourse that happens online. Valerie has great insights, so I love seeing your tweets. Valerie Valerie used to live in the same city as me. We used to see each other at trainings all the time, and then she moved to New York and became super awesome, and now now we only get to chat via Twitter. Because all of those awesome people live in New York. I miss (laughs) Sacramento, though. I miss it. I do. I miss the weather, and I miss the people. It was a nice little group there. But you know, you know how stacking. It's New York, yeah. Little. I can't, I can't blame you for turning it down for for an actual like city with culture. So the best city, the best city, one, one of Allegedly. the best cities. Yes, one of the best cities. I have been to New York three times, and I think I've spent a total of twenty five hours there. I need to fix that. You do yeah. need to fix that. <laughs> it's have you with us today um let's go ahead and get right into some news guys we had some really exciting news this week the weinstein company declared bankruptcy and yeah. all their NDAs are invalidated or actually released not invalid so oh. i'm actually surprised that m- as soon as that happened we didn't get a flood of stories i think I was there's waiting. a reason for it <laughs> i think it's they're talking to the cops good that's, That's what, what I think, yeah. <laughs> I think people just expected that to happen, sort of. It wasn't surprising news, so there wasn't, like, a ton of coverage on it. I think you'll see more stories depending on who decides to buy it. Who decides to buy it and touch it and danger it. I think you'll see a lot more of that, of those stories, if that happens. Well, wasn't, yeah. Wasn't there some talk, uh, uh, there was a, 
a woman's production company that was looking into it and then finally was like, no, they have way too many debts and pulled out. That's yeah, what that, I heard yeah. about it. They pulled out weeks ago, and so that was why, that was what prompted the of the official formal bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So, but as Wait, so as- the Weinstein company has too many debts? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, they owe, like, everyone money. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Oh, they probably, they probably owe you money. Everyone like, they owe all of us money. <laughs> yeah. Well, they owe oh, me money goodness. for a couple of those movies that I watched that weren't good. But... <laughs> oh, yeah, you mean, like, Tulip Fever? That's oh, one yeah. Ooh. I Yes, I was one of the four people who saw it. Yeah. <laughs> that. More brutal soul than I am, because I didn't even bother. It was, it was very much a case of curiosity. Same. But, um... Yeah, but as far as the NDAs go, um, I think the I really think the reason that we didn't hear more um, news when um, when that all came out, I think the reason that is that people. I mean, the whole the whole thing is that ultimately we want to see Weinstein. He, he has done some really terrible things, and we want to see some justice for that. And so I think, and I think that's why people aren't talking. I think they really did go to the cops, go to the DA, and they're like, "Okay, I'm ready to tell you what I know." And so I think some of those stories will come out down the road, but I think it's going to take a little while. And I, well, um, I went, to the, went to the Times Up meeting uh, last week on um, this big push in New York about trying to get like Weinstein prosecuted and things like that. So they took the issue to Governor Cuomo here in New York, and he's he's going to launch an investigation into all of that. So uh, we're winding down. It's only a matter of time before Weinstein ends up in under the jail. Um, yeah. Because, you know, those women are, are really paid off. So I'm really happy that uh, that that has come to fruition, at least, um, that there's some progress. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear that. That's awesome. I know that there was some controversy over the DA moving forward or something, but um, I'm glad to know that people are putting pressure in the right places because this does need to happen. He does need to go away. So one other garbage person's news came out last week. Terry Gilliam made some headlines and y'all talked about it when I wasn't here. Um, that he was like, hey, people need to chill out. Well, Lauren had some thoughts about Mr. Gilliam. And um, we had all kind like of predicted. Yeah, we had all kind of predicted that somebody uh, had, who hurt him? Who did he hurt? Exactly. Yeah, what did he do? I just said that. Yes, Lauren, came out. It was in, um, Van- was it Vanity Fair or Variety? Ellen Barkin pissed off and uh, took and basically said now nothing but what she said was not to get into an elevator with Terry Gilliam um, so there seems to be some sort of you know illusion at least if not an actual accusation I don't know if more is going to cut um, but certainly sounds like Ellen Barkin is essentially saying like oh, yeah. don't be alone with this guy That's as lovely. she had some sort of experience with him um, this would have been a Regis, um, she was in that movie, and you also have Johnny Depp in there. I mean, it's really <laughs> frightening to see how some of these guys just, like, three, like, five years later, like... Yeah, I mean, yeah, these club that is, yeah. that is happening here. And I'm, I'm brokenhearted about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, um, and, and it is, it is rapidly becoming a film that I don't know if I'm going to be able to watch. Like, first Johnny Depp and then Terry Gilliam, it's just like, it's uh, Benicio Del Toro, like, if you, if, if we find out something about Benicio Del Toro, then it's just all over for me. I don't know. Terry Gilliam has, has a long history of harassment against women, though. I feel like I've, we heard this new 
news, I wasn't super surprised because I feel like three years ago there was something else that came. I had to do some research, but I could have swore I read something a while ago where Terry Gilliam was like bullying women online, which is something he does often. And many women don't like working with Terry Gilliam. I mean, I have enjoyed some of his films, but his reputation is not all that great in Hollywood. So none of this surprises me at all. Um, he's always been on, especially he, he bullied Amber Heard. Everybody remember that? Yeah. 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 So, you know, he's a piece of shit no matter like what, but I feel like he has, he's had a long history of like bullying and harassing women, but that could, you know, just be bitterness that his films don't do well. And like, nobody's been checking for him, you know, in a long time. And maybe this is his way to get attention, to get back in the spotlight. Because, you know, there are some men like that who need constant attention, you know, because they're not at home from their wives, their husbands. Or- You're um, uh, being a particularly nice person on set, being very controlling. Uh, I, I know that there was something that came out. Someone uh, discussed this when, the initial, when his initial statements came out um, last week. Someone discussed like his attitude towards Michelle Williams, that he was complaining about how he just wanted to hang out with the boys. Michelle Williams was controlling him and all of this shit. But he de- he he's got a problem, you know, how far that problem has gone. In, but he's got this problem with with being abusive, particularly to women. You're right. Yeah, I don't. Does he have any like projects coming out soon that we can like publicly say? He does. He has. He has his long gestating Don Quixote movie that he's been trying yes. to make for right. about what 20, 25 years. Um, yeah. I think this time now it's finally happening with Adam Driver. Are we sure? Oh, no, I think he said. I think he said it was done. It was filmed. It's no, made. It's this made. might have killed it. It might not yeah. get seen. That's well, after all seen? of this. That's after what we all said last of this, week. we said that. I said that last week. I was like, why would you shoot yourself in the foot when your movies are already so precarious to make? And you know funding is is tenuous. Like, why do that to your project? This project that you've been trying to make that's been your, like, supposedly your masterpiece for, you know, 30-some-odd years. Why do that to yourself? I mean, unless this is his misguided attempt to get more butts in the seats. Get himself his name in the paper so people come see it out of curiosity. yeah, yeah, like Valerie says. But the Don Quixote has already been such a like I I mean I I know at least in, in the group of friends that I have like we've been talking about this film forever a lot of people saw Lost in the Mancha which is about failing to make that movie uh, and now it's finally gotten made so it's like Terry Gilliam oh my God just shut up just don't talk well, I bet you know we'll be we'll be hearing from Adam Driver soon and his apology working with Terry Gilliam who's just an asshole because once they start that the movie's coming out. I'm telling you, everything is going to drop. Any harassment yeah. that he's done, going to drop. P- apologies, going to drop. Everything's going to drop once he, once the movie is Because that's just the way people are doing things these days. Like, they're waiting until the announcement of the movie or the week before your film comes out to just drop yeah. allegations. Which is not a bad thing. Um, so I guess we'll just have to wait for that if nothing comes out sooner. Um, yeah. I know Ellen Barkin has been pretty vocal um, about certain things, so maybe we'll hear something from her soon. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Okay. Well, who is uh, doesn't seem to be a garbage person, and hopefully will stay that way and kind of try to overtake first place for best Chris yesterday. In Teen Vogue, uh, Chris Evans, Captain America, had an, an interview, and he said something to just 
call attention to it for a second. <laughs> he said, the hardest thing to reconcile is that just because you have good intentions doesn't mean it's your time to have a voice. He was talking to men who call themselves allies in the Me Too movement. And yeah, basically he's telling them, sometimes you shut up. And he's right. Men agree with that. And sometimes <laughs> men should not wear mustaches, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, that hurts too much. Don't bring it up. <laughs> I love how the Cavill mustache disappeared and it ended up on Chris Evans. Like, we all think that's the same mustache, right? He just ripped it off and gave it to him. I I kind of don't hate it, but... (laughs) I don't know. Would you prefer the uh, CGI face on Chris Evans? Is that something that you would... The Justice League CGI face? Oh. That is the face of nightmares is what that is, so... All right. Um, so, Triple Frontier is finally happening. Kristen, what is Triple Frontier, and why is it happening? Uh, I don't know why it's happening, but it's all sorts of good in my book. Um, so, Triple Frontier is a movie that J.C. Chandor has been trying to make for about as long as I feel Terry Gilliam's been trying to make uh, his his uh, Don Quixote movie. It was supposed to, I think, film a couple years ago with Casey Affleck, and then that didn't happen, thank God. And then it was going to happen, I think, last year with Channing Tatum. And then that didn't happen. And then we were just all sitting there thinking, well, this movie's never going to happen. Um, and that would be really sad because it was going to be J.C. Chandler up to, to A Most Violent Year, which is one of my favorite movies. And it's probably my second favorite Oscar Isaac movie. So now it's, it's finally out that the movie is actually filming. So if you live in Hawaii and you wonder why there is a dearth of hot people in your town well now you know but it's gonna happen with uh ben affleck this is why we get all those glorious photos of his back tattoo (laughs) oh it's it's horrid uh charlie hunnam garrett headland and my husband oscar isaac it's the story about five friends who uh gets get together to take down a drug lord it sounds like a very bro-y movie I don't really know if it's going to be any good, but as Karen says about certain people, I say in Chandor we trust because he's two for two for me. I love Margin Call. I think that's a better movie than The Big Short. And I I love The Most Violent Year. So I haven't seen All's Lost. That's the only one I haven't seen. Um, I'll get to it someday. Um, but if anything, if anything, the bonus features for this movie themselves because I just want footage of the brocation that everybody's been on. I don't know what what they're doing. I mean, they're just like hanging out and I'm assuming they're filming a movie and I want footage of it. So (laughs) this is coming to Netflix too. So remember how I talk shit about Netflix like all the time? Um, I might not talk shit about this one. I mean, as long as there's not pedophiles and Amish mutes, I will be so happy. Um, (laughs) So yeah, it's it's been an interesting uh, couple sending me photos of uh, their their little like buddy bro hangout and um, I support this. I don't okay, support guys, back is... tattoos though. <laughs> well, which is worse, Ben Affleck's back tattoo or Henry Cavill's face in Justice League? The back tattoo. <laughs> back tattoo. No, uh, it's just no, not. I'm su- I'm going so back weird. tattoo. Okay. But seriously, why is the tattoo not finished? <laughs> I believe I believe it was I believe it was Casey Cipriani who brought up. I believe it was her, and if it wasn't, I apologize. But we were all looking at this tattoo very in depth, and <laughs> if you're curious about it, it's a phoenix on the top half of him yeah and the bottom it looks like he has a dragon coming from his ass 
Because why we wouldn't like, you? What is the story here, Ben? What What is going on? And then Terrence, our, our good friend of the podcast, Terrence, said that if Ben Affleck was like Batman shape, we wouldn't be complaining. No, we. Oh, I would, still I be would definitely still yeah. be complaining. I would <laughs> so be complaining. Although my mom and I had a, like a twenty five minute conversation yesterday talking about this movie, more so talking about their like little bro cabble that they got going on here. Because I was sitting there thinking, okay, you're a you're a young Hawaiian girl. And you see this, like, group of dudes. And you're like, Charlie Hunnam, his accent never sounds like it's really his, but okay. Garrett Hedlund's a good-looking dude. Oscar Isaac's adorable. Okay, Pedro Pascal's there. And then you have Ben. Aww. I'm thinking Ben's the duff at this point. I mean, <laughs> sorry, Ben, but, but that's what we kind of agreed. Okay, me and Mom, at least. Um, um, I'm going to ask a question, and I'm going to be that person. Are there any black people in this movie? Not that I have I seen doesn't seem on like it. the IMDb. Mm. And that is disheartening. Now that's yeah, the it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it. At least not the main cast. So we got two we got two Latinos and a bunch of white people. Yep. And the thing oh my lord. <laughs> I just, you know, I don't know. I don't know anymore. You know, ever since awakening that's been happening on social media and happening with, you know, other people, it's been, sometimes I wonder, it's like, it's hard to even get into things that I used to like. And so with this, you know, this, this new film that you guys are talking about, it sounds good. The cast sounds good, but you know, it doesn't seem very reflect in Hawaii. It doesn't seem very reflective of the scene and, you know, of the world, um, because everybody visibly looks white. So, yeah, there aren't even any Asians in this movie. And I, and yeah, I think this point. is supposed. I think I think Hawaii's standing in for South America too. I don't I think they're actually. Yeah. yeah. So uh, okay. So uh, okay. Was, they're just filming in Hawaii. Yeah, I think they're just filming there. But then you go back to the whole like you know we're, once they were talking about like Latin drug dealers and everything. You're like really. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that's you know Valerie gives us a good segue into talking about Isle of Dogs. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I won't get into my thoughts on the movie until I will say that when I was watching it, I found myself wondering. Well, hold you on. Know, let's give some context. Let's give context. Yeah. Well, yeah. I am. I am. Oh, I was gonna. Uh, I was gonna say what the plot of the movie is and the whole like. I was getting there. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> you do you. You do you. Thank you. All right. Well, while I was watching Isle of Dogs, which is Wes Anderson's new animated film. Um, I feel wondering because the film is set in Japan, uh, very definitely set in Japan. It doesn't just allude to it. It's like, we're in the city of Megasaki, Japan, which doesn't actually exist, but whatever. Um, that just sounds racist on the surface. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, but I found myself wondering, okay, if, if I were Japanese, how would I feel about the fact that my culture is being depicted this way on screen? And I didn't. I, you know, like I said, I'll talk about more about the movie itself later, but I didn't personally not, I didn't like dislike it. I didn't have a problem with it, but I did find myself wondering how other people would feel. And Justin Chang from the LA Times wrote a review, uh, which went up on Wednesday, and he was talking about how he thought them good in a lot of ways, but there were some representation issues and some cultural appropriation issues. And he gave examples. And I, I commented and said, hey, thanks for that. I was wondering how other people would feel while I was watching the movie. 
And then I turned my phone and went into an event. <laughs> and uh, when I came out, I turned my phone back and I had 56 Twitter notifications. Oh, never a good sign. And I instantly went, oh, crap. <laughs> like, what happened? I wasn't even thinking about Justin Chang or his Isle of Dogs review. I had no idea what had happened. I was just like, oh, my gosh, you know, what's going on here? So I opened up Twitter and it turned out that his his original tweet sharing this review had been added to a Twitter moment and so had my response <laughs> and I was getting a lot of comic <laughs> and some of them were fine uh, a lot of them were actually li- a lot of likes on that question but then there were some that were not not so pleasant and I don't need to get into what they said because some of them were just like so I mean, I'm not easily offended, so I just kind of was like, really? You know, it didn't it didn't like, bother me on a personal level. I just was so floored that people could just be that way. You know, I've, I've seen it, but I've never experienced it. I've never been in the middle of it. And so it was just a very strange experience. But here's, here's the thing with Isle of Dogs. Um, it does depict the Japanese culture in very simplistic ways. It does not explore the culture at all. And... There are things like, it, right up front, it tells you that they're not trans... Well, they're letting all the characters speak in their native language. So the Japanese characters are going to speak Japanese. There are there are a couple of American characters. They speak English. Um, and that they'll use translations. They'll use a translator. They'll use lots of different things so that you know what's going on. But they're not going to have... Japanese characters speaking in English or anything like that. So that's how the film goes. Well, but one of the problems is the dogs are all from Japan and they're voiced by Brian Cranston, Jeff Goldblum, Bob Balaban, Edward Norton, uh, Liev Schreiber. So it's like, like, wait, but they're from Japan and they're speaking very clearly American English. So that was like, okay, wait, that's a little weird. And so some people are taking issue with that totally justifiably and other people think that they are stupid and a lot of other really horrible things for having feelings about it so that's where we're at the thing that's that's like amazed me by all of this commentary is i haven't seen the film right but that almost all of the reviews that i've read particularly from asian american reviewers have been fairly have been like this is a good film there's a lot of good in it here's a bunch of problematic stuff that is also happening at the same time. So it's not like they're even panning the film and saying this is a bad movie. It's, it's essentially saying this is well made. And actually what makes, what makes it even more disturbing is that it's, it is so well made and it is such a good film and it has all of this other shit going on in it. Um, you know, one of the, I, I read, uh, I think Angie Han's review on Mashable. Um, and one of the, the the things that stood out to me is that she said, watching Owl of Dogs, it's hard not to think that the U.S. may be the last country on Earth that should be preaching about how awful it would be if the Japanese carted off an unfairly maligned American-coded population to an internment camp. And just reading that, I was like, holy shit, that's what happens? Mm, basically, like, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's like, how does no one, particularly any American critic, regardless of race, not not look at that and go like this this is an issue this is a problem um, well i think that very question lauren is going to be something that we're going to talk about in a minute 
um, as far as history and stuff like that. So I well, have a point I, I want to make when we get to that. One topic, of the um, one of the issues that I remember reading, I think it was Inku Kang from I think she's at Vox or Slate. It was one of those reviews that I read that talks about how the dog characters, okay, fine, but the human characters were where the problem lies because I think about two thirds into the film, a white American woman shows up. And then the uh, central Asian character is relegated to the background to give rise to this white American woman is like, you know, the revolutionary. She's a high and school student made... who's an exchange student in Japan. And she very much on the role of the white savior. Very much. Yeah. And it's like, you know, well, first of all, you start with the criticism being run, being overrun with males white males and they're not going to see the things that people of color are going to see that Asian people are going to see that's one two is um, I think there's this need uh, especially for fans of Wes Anderson and you know people who are just racist trolls in general there's this need to sort of preserve whiteness so anytime you complain about something or anytime you have a, co- a commentary about race or how it's treated people go itch because they you know they want to sort of preserve and save the status quo but the big question is are directors anderson how can they keep up in this current climate where people want to see and people demand more diversity in cinema because i mean isle of dog has a ton of issues like there's you know the most of the cast is male most of the cast is white um you know, how the Japanese characters are treated. And what I dislike most is when things like this arise, they throw out these articles featuring the token Japanese person or the token Asian or the token black person to help defend whatever it is they're doing. I saw an article recently today, about, I forget his name, but he, he helped co-write Isle Dogs. And there's like this big article that's being promoted. And it's like, oh, here's how he feels about it. It's like... That's not the point. How he feels about it is irrelevant. Of course, he's going to love it because he's part of the project. You know, it's about representation, proper representation, not just being and showing the characters developed. Um, Do they have an overall art that carries over from beginning to end? Like, stuff like that is what people want to see. So it makes me wonder if Wes Anderson, how his career is going to continue to thrive in the current climate. Are we going to see him producing movies? Is he going to actually make a change? Like, what's going to happen? People don't want to see that shit anymore. I mean, some people. I mean, some people do. Um, you know, he has a really good, you know, dedicated core fan base. But in this current climate, are people really about all of that? I don't think so. So I'm curious to know how he, what, what's his plan for trying to continue to survive in this in this current climate. Sorry, yeah. I went on for too long. Oh this no, thing no. About that was not too long. Things. Definitely no. But you actually bring up something I did want to mention, which is. Kunichi Nomura is the writer who got a story credit. I am not clear on whether he's actually a credited writer on the film. I wasn't paying close enough attention when I was watching the credits and they didn't give me production notes. So, as a story credit, not a co-writing credit as far as I am aware. Ah, okay, okay. And okay. that is significant. That matters. Well, mm. and and Anderson, as, as you point out, Valerie, Anderson has had uh, issues with whitewashing and issues with cultural appropriation for quite a number of his films. There was a lot of talk uh, when the Darjeeling Limited came out, oh, yeah. talking about the way that um, Indian characters were represented, the way that white characters were represented within an Indian landscape. And mm. 
and how and were sort of turned into this aesthetic look that Anderson is so well known for that works just fine in things like the Royal Tenenbaums or uh, even the Fantastic Mr. Fox, but that as soon as you begin transplanting it into you, you've got white characters going to Japan or India or anywhere else, that suddenly we have these conversations about cultural appropriation. Now, I, I absolutely think that you're right. It's like the Darjeeling Limited we sort of passed over several years ago because it was a different, it, we shouldn't have, but it was a different landscape basically in this conversation. And now we're reaching a point where we're just like, you know what, this is bullshit. We can't, we can't ignore this stuff anymore. Uh, we shouldn't have been ignoring it in the first place. So, yeah, it, it will be interesting to see where Anderson goes from this. The problem is he has a very strong fan base that love, I, I mean, I like Wes Anderson's films. I like his aesthetic, but this, this sort of shit is incredibly problematic and we can't, we can't keep on giving it a pass. But then again, the thing is, like, <clears throat> the whole thing that went down with, like, I mean, this whole family is, seems to have problems, it seems like, um, with Sofia Coppola and um, The Beguiled, a film yeah. that I actually liked more than I thought I would. Um, but, you know, the issues arose with representation and blah, blah. And the thing I think people like me have to ask myself is, do I want to write characters that are similar to me um, and what if he doesn't get them right mm -hmm. then well, I, I'll be can, upset you know I can go on to that because when I because I okay and I'm not name dropping but people are going to assume I am when I interviewed Sofia Coppola la uh, last year I asked her I was like well you know you removed the African American slave character from the original film you didn't you didn't have and how do you how do you kind of answer people who claim that you decided to just whitewash the story and she was like I didn't want to talk about something that I didn't have experience on and I was and people still kind of gave her shit for that answer but I was kind of like the way she she told it to me was that she was damned if she did and she was damned if she didn't if she had included that character and it wasn't written with any type of nuance or, or you know, true representation, she still would have gotten flack for it. And so a lot of these directors, especially kind of the ultra quote unquote white ones, like like a Coppola, like a like an Anderson, even like a Scorsese. I mean, I think we forget how mm -hmm. how white Scorsese's mm -hmm. absolutely. Are. Um, yep. I think they, they isolate themselves and they, they kind of have now it's becoming an excuse to kind of say well I right. didn't want to talk out of turn but at the same time I was like at the same time do you want these people saying those things you know right. writing those those characters I would call it like a valid excuse yes. because it is it's valid but it's like sis I know there's a ton of you don't know any black people like, well, right. like you know, they yeah, are. So yeah, extends, exactly. It also extends to hiring, just hiring people. Then, if you can't do it in your story, do it with your casting of of your crew. You know, you can right. hire you can hire minority voices to be your cinematographer or to be your editor or something. So at least you're you're like, hey, my movies might not have a lot of diversity in the characterization and the voice acting, but damn it, my crew is as diverse as you can get. I I mean, there are ways right. around that. Get, get right. a co-writer. Get a script advisor. Get, get someone. Get a consultant. Yes. Oh, my God, please. Exactly. <laughs> like, 
I, I, I just, and I, I want, like, I get it. Like, you know, Wes Anderson, it's weird. like Sophia Coppola writes about troubled white women. Like, I get it. And it's all she knows. Like, I totally get it. And I like, her, I like some of her films. Wes Anderson writes about troubled white people, you know, families with problems. Like, you know, that, and I totally get it. But like you said, like, even on the sets of like all these superhero movies or some of the other films, like they all have consultants. Like I think on Kubo and the Two Strings, there were also some casting issues, but they had like several consultants on hand, which is like, okay, great, kudos to you. Uh, I even think that Ghost in the Shell had a couple of consultants as well. Um, get you know, get somebody you could talk to. It's, it makes me think that they just don't have any friends of color. Like, like that, and it's like, do you, you don't know anybody that you can it's talk possible. to like at yeah. all? Yeah. Uh, well, just looking through the um, the crew for Isle of Dogs, just to bring it back around to that, you know, just comment the costume, sound, everything. There are very few, uh, very few Asian names, not just Japanese. Very few Asian names at all on this list. And so, yeah, I mean, it's like you don't want to give up the writing credit. You want to hold on to that story and protect it. There are a lot of other ways that you can bring in other people and get those voices. So, mm-hmm. well, and one of the criticisms I read of Isle. Nope. True. Uh, that it could have, because it's it's a dystopia, it's a near dystopian future, right? This could have been set pan, and it sounds like, at least a lot of the commentary I'm reading, it sounds like he chose it was actually going to inform the film in in a way that he was that he was able to do it, except stereotyping and whitewashing and stuff like that. So yeah, obviously, it seems to be in working within milieus that aren't just ex- almost exclusively white. Don't set them in other countries that aren't white. Like it's it's just mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So we'll we'll talk a little bit more about the film later because I will give some thoughts on what I think of film separate from this controversy, which is very much the criticisms that are coming out are very valid. And please don't be an asshole. Please listen to what people are saying, especially to what Japanese people are saying about this film and how their culture is being read. I can't believe the stuff that people said to me for daring to wonder how other people felt. It was amazing. It uh, Just don't be that guy or girl. Just don't. Um, okay. Sorry, let's move on from this topic. I'm getting a little bit mad <laughs> reliving wednesday night all over again and thursday but uh, okay so let's move into just some discussed week you all talked about a little film coming up called life itself which stars oscar isaac and is written by dan fogelman who is the creator writer of my favorite show on television right now this is us and I just wanted to spend a minute defending Dan Fogelman from Kristen Lopez. <laughs> okay, you know, so here's my thing. I would not have a problem with this movie if what I know about it and what I've read about it and what I've read Fogelman's own words was just not a dumpster fire of, like, twee sentiment. And you know what? That's fine. Maybe it's not for me. Why do we gotta? Well, but here's here's the thing, though. Sometimes, in fact, a lot of times, things play out differently when you actually see them versus when you're reading it. And so that's that's part one of what I want to say. The other thing is, like, with this is us, it's not. It doesn't have that. I can see where people might 
assume that it's but it's very much it's not overly sentimental it's it's all very earned it's very it's it's not about the big dramatic moments it's just about really getting through life and he it's it's he's actually a really fascinating writer and creative person that way because what you think is just going to be a whole bunch of like yep this is just the same old stuff all the time it's not and so that's why i think yes i know you've read the script yes it's probably the finished script but i think that when it plays out on screen it's actually going to be a lot more um a lot more interesting and a lot more balanced. Okay, than so you, think so it you, is. you so heard it. That's all I'm going to say. It. We're going to take bets. We're, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to take bets. We're going to take bets. If if Karen can't me to change my mind when this movie actually comes out in September, <laughs> we'll, we'll come up with some sort of prize that the other person has to do. I don't know. Maybe I'll actually watch <laughs> an episode of this this show. Um, yes. I'm not. I have the I, perfect one for you. I think my issue would be at this point is that maybe he's a better TV writer where he has a whole season to explain him. You know, let things play out the way this movie is going to play out does not benefit a two-hour movie, I think is going to be the problem that a lot of people have. So, what But I gonna... thought that about Crazy Stupid Love, too, and I love that But that's movie. also co-written with um, John Requa and um, Glenn Ficarra. My only problem those. so far with life itself is the fact that my boyfriend Sterling K. Brown is not in it. Oh yeah, that not. feels like a missed opportunity. It's kind of a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it would have been a really missed opportunity because based on what happens, actually, no, it's probably better that it's all white people in this movie. <laughs> um, so Oscar yeah. Isaac isn't white. I know he's not white, but at this point, he's playing so many white people, he might as well be. Um, I was going to say, he plays a lot of white people. He looks white. He's colorblind casting at this point. Yeah, that's exactly I love him, okay? I just, there's parts in the plot line that I know I'm going to be, like, there's a part in this movie that I'm telling you all. I might might scream in a movie theater. You might have to cart me out. (laughs) Um... Well, it's gonna be bad. All right. Well, so I'm just either way, it's gonna be good. I'm gonna love it. It's if, gonna be great. If I change my mind, I will. Her words. Yes. If I change my mind and I tell Karen she was wrong and that my review and my review is the you know positive one, I will watch an episode of this show. Um, if it still say if we if if it's still a hot dumpster fire of awfulness, then I don't know. I have to come up with something. <laughs> We'll figure it out. We've got time. Yeah. But it's not going to matter anyway, because you're going to love it. And I'm going to make you watch the Memphis episode. Oh, God. Yeah. We'll know, we'll know on September 21st. Um, well, pro- we'll probably know before that, because Karen and I will probably have press screenings before that. But um... I sure hope so. Um, all right. So let's move on from Dan Fogelman, the amazing person that he is. Mm. And, <laughs> <laughs> and let's talk about an article that came out in the LA Times, which I found very fascinating when I read it. Well, I don't know if fascinating is the right word, but it piqued my curiosity about think about some of these things. The article by Katie Walsh, and it's about stereotype women's films that want to see go away. And she picked um, that just so let's just run through this really quick, and then um, then we can add our own if we have any or comment on the ones that she includes. So first, we've got the long-suffering wife, which is also known as the phone. Um, some examples that would be Lenny's character and Sully, where she's just there waiting for him to call, you know, all the time, and like it's okay, you're good, you know, that kind of thing. 
I, I'd also say Sarah Paulson. Yeah. Well, I think she gets a little bit more depth, but it, it's very much that type of character. See, but see, I, I like the one the article gave, Den of Thieves. <laughs> oh, yeah, the Den of Thieves. That movie just comes back <laughs> know, like a right? bad penny. Yeah, the wife in Den of Thieves. Oh, goodness gracious. Don Olivieri. She leaves and takes her daughter with her. and Yeah. Um, I didn't see that movie, so I'm just... Oh, you missed so much. I don't think I did. <laughs> so then there's the sexual conquest to help him get his mojo back, also known as the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. I like that that um, descriptor, which was defined... Um, let me see where it is. Uh, she talks about... Well, the Manic Pixie Dream a Girl film, is... Yeah, is... a term coined by film and music critic in 2007. It describes that... female characters who help a man feel excited about life again. So, this would be Isn't Natalie... that most Woody Allen films? <laughs> Pretty much. True. Pretty yeah. much, yeah. Yep, exactly. Um, so this would be like Natalie Portman's character in in, in uh, Garden State, Kirsten Dunst's character in, in Elizabethtown. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, there's um, she talks about father figures with Ed Helms. Zoe Deschanel in Thirty Days of Summer. Yep. I would also say I would say any woman in a Cameron Crowe film as well. Mm. Uh, not just Elizabeth Town, but you also get like Emma Stone yeah. and like Aloha. Yes, I'm the you are. <laughs> That's why no one yeah. else thought of it. I, I exactly. blanked it out. It's fine. And then number three, you've got the cold careerist, this which is hate. someone like Bryce Dallas Howard keeping her fucking heels on in Jurassic World. <laughs> That type of character. Catherine Heigl in 27 Dresses. Yeah, yeah. You've got... Uh, although she defrosts at the end, so... But there's a um, point that, like, how dare a woman be... Like, you can't have a career and, and a personal life. <laughs> yes. So. No, no, there needs to be a man to tame her ovaries. Yes. Right. Exactly. Get her down to procreate. <laughs> or make them... Explode. So that's pretty much like the taming of the shrew. Uh, yes. Um, yes. Yeah, trope. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. This, this stuff has been around for ages, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then we've got the rape victim who inspires action. That's my um, favorite one. Yeah. <laughs> this would be someone like um, in... In... Nate, in uh, Parker's Birth Nate of a Nation. Parker's, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, I got a movie. I got a movie within that trope to talk about. You know, once we get there, because I saw a movie last night called Revenge, which was pretty much the the whole plot was based around you know a rape and revenge. And I'm like, wow, that's all you need to make a movie these days. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the whole, all the death ways. Yeah, the death, death ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then the other one is the plucky girl child who helps and find his purpose. And the examples she gives are um, Jodie Foster's character in Taxi Driver, McKenna Grace in, um, in Gifted. Gifted. I was also thinking of Natalie Portman in Beautiful Girls. Yep. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So those are the, the five that she lists. Are there any other... Uh, any other stereotypes we can think of or just anything that we want to any examples we want to add to any of these that are personal the one I personally like is that is the the career woman or the the concept of you have to have a baby in order to find meaning in your life so I think of like um 
what is it like in like in baby mama or you know the concept of like she has all of a sudden this biological clock just like starts ticking at a certain point like she never really wanted babies and now she does um or I think of something like or the baby boom, baby boom, exactly. Like you have yeah. to adapt your career in order to fit your baby if you're a woman. Um, Hand the rocks the cradle. I mean, the whole concept of like you have to fear the woman that's gonna be in your house because she's gonna try to gaslight you and like. <laughs> well, and along those lines too, the other drives me crazy is the women that like they their life has no meaning because they have no child at all. Yeah, I was and that like one. that. Yeah, and, like, I mean, I think that Rebecca DeMornay's character in The Hand That Rocks Girl is one of those. She's very vengeful because of the fact that this was taken by her character. It's like, yeah. no. Well, we talked about this with Annihilation, mm. too. Yep. I mean, the whole concept of, like, damaged goods Whoa. and women going out. Yeah. yeah, into space that, because they're, they're... That really made me angry. Like, what? <laughs> they have to be broken women because that's... Yep. What leads to the investigation? Like, no, stop. Pause. Mm-hmm. Pause. Yeah. But, uh, I think Black Widow. Just... Yeah. yeah. Uh, Black Widow in, in Avengers, like her whole the whole thing, of making her, you know, oh, I'm a monster. I'm, I'm. Oh yeah, when they terrible did that to because... her in Age of Ultron. Oh. Yeah, because. What are you guys? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just because she's like not not that she's had that taken away from her. She's incapable of having children, and therefore there is something monstrous about her. Right. Yeah, I'm so sick of this. Like, it's okay. Like, I am tired. I'm a 41 year old woman. I do not have children, and it's very unlikely that I will. And you know what? I'm okay with that. And that should be Same, mine sis. on Same. screen. Thank Same. You. Yes. Yes. Same. Like, I always. Well, I guess when you look at film, Miss Sloan, that falls into like the career woman, the icy career woman mm-hmm. who's like has no children and whatever, whatever. I mean, I think Jessica Chastain plays those type of roles pretty well my thing is i'm i try to find a balance between because sometimes it's okay if it's done really well but most of the time it's not because it's written by men who don't know other women so they write it and then it's terrible but um there are definitely you know tropes that i'm tired of seeing like i i was really annoyed by that in annihilation but then you have stuff like red sparrow where it's all about tropes like every single trope in the book is thrown into that slow paced dull movie and it's like okay well we're gonna use instead of you know they try to flip tropes on its head where it's like okay we know it's a trope but we're gonna use it as a weapon and and we think that we're doing it well but we really aren't like where it's like the line has, has anybody seen red sparrow unfortunately this is like I, yeah i have yeah i missed they, that you know one one of, one of the lines oh you didn't miss nothing girl yeah. one of the lines <laughs> in the movie that she says is she says you sent me to horse school I was with somebody else. And we were stunned. We were just like, like, "What?" Well, the well, I heard the book isn't that great either. But it's not. Um, but um, it's like, okay, so this is written by men, directed by men, um, and this is typical. Well, and I think I, I think Red Sparrow is a great example of the whole we we're going to empower women purely by showcasing how sexual they have to be in order to be empowered. Like that's a male concept right there. That's a big trip also, yeah. Yeah, Definitely. Um, But that was also one of my problems with Atomic Blonde. Like, I know people really loved it. I I just didn't because it just seemed so... And I I guess I can see where why people liked that portion of it so much, but it just seems so... The women, the female characters, I hate saying female, but the way that women are written, they still don't seem like human beings. 
like I get that they were trying to create something that was like you know you know game on uh which I think I did it it did a fairly good job but <laughs> her personality didn't I don't know I, I can't even explain it you know because I've had this argument like 50 11 times I've run out of words to describe it but the, you know there are a lot of different so you know there's tropes and then there's sub tropes out there um so the, there's a lot of them we could spend a whole podcast talking about tropes oh yeah there's so many could. that's one i'll throw out because i know valerie mentioned jessica chastain daddy issues oh sis yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes yes girls you know what your problem is is that you don't love your dad enough. <laughs> or your you dad doesn't love you understand how your dad really was in your childhood. Exactly. You're, yeah. Was your dad an asshole? That's okay, girls. Get over it. Because deep down, he really did it for the best. Yeah. And that's why I appreciated I, Tanya. I know, you know, it's, you know, it's a film that it's divisive. People are sort of split on it. But I did appreciate Alice and Jenny's performance. Because sometimes moms can be fucking terrifying evil. Mm-hmm. And you know, and sometimes we have money issues too. But yep. it's like you know, since you know, since our society is so patriarchal, and they think that the father figure is the center of the of the fucking universe. Then of course, if you have daddy issues, that was a huge problem with Molly's game and a huge um, plot point that entire film down and, and knocked it down a few notches. Um, as far as I'm concerned, or a few stars, because okay, well, need to resolve daddy issues. It's also typical Aaron Sorkin. It just I, I don't know. It just sort of ruined film three. But yes, Kristen, that's a big one. Daddy issues. Like I'm so fucking tired of that. Oh my. Well, God. and I think Molly's game is exactly where she was going. Oh on. yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It was. <laughs> so all right, well, let's talk. We had a couple of trailers this week. Let's talk about those. Um, first up, we had the trailer for tag which is apparently based on a true story it stars Peter and Helms John uh yeah John Ham um Hannibal Burris um Kiss of Death Annabelle Wallace <laughs> yes I'm sorry the so, girl has not made anything that I anything that I've liked so I just I I'm the mummy nervous. yeah yeah, yeah. the mummy mm-hmm. yes, oh, yeah. Oh. you ladies so, are better than I <laughs> Yeah, so, but anyway, it's about a small group of former classmates organizing an elaborate annual game of tag that requires some to travel all over the country. Basically, it's a game of tag they've been playing since, like, first grade, um, according to the true story, which this movie is adapted from from a Wall Street Journal article about these real friends, and there were nine of them. There's only five in the movie, but, but, um, yeah, basically just go to uh, great lengths to tag each other one month every year and Jeremy Renner plays the guy who has never been tagged and it's been 30 years and now he wants to retire from the game but he's getting married and it happens to be in May so they are out to get him so did you guys all watch the trailer? Yeah I did (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't seem very enthusiastic (laughs) you know I just I think we're coming to a point now where we're really starting to just hit the wall of movie ideas. And I'm sure this movie looks better than other quote-unquote game-based movies that I've seen, but this came out right around the trailer for Truth or Dare coming out, and, like, really? Tag? Truth or Dare? I'm waiting for the inevitable spin-the-bottle game, you know? I'm just... <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, this, I'm gonna this looks admit... quirky. I'm going to admit, this one, it, it caught my interest in a way 
it it sort of reminded me a little bit of how I felt when I watched the first trailer for The Hangover, where I was like, that looks ridiculous, but kind of funny. And I loved the first Hangover movie. So I don't know. I'm holding out a little bit of hope. Maybe that's just because Ed Helms is there. I don't know. But uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm holding out some hope, but that's mainly because I would watch John Hamm act his way out of a paper bag, and I'm desperate to see him get... <laughs> a hit post Mad Men. He's had such a long sl- long haul since then. Baby Driver did fine. Yeah, it's I, I like to see him in a bigger part. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. um the other thought I had is have we seen Jeremy Renner try comedy? Yeah. He is such a wild card for me. I mean I loved him in, you know, something like uh Oh my god, the one I'm spacing out now. The uh God, that war movie that started his career, but have the we seen Locker? him do comedy? Oh yeah. Um yeah, he's done he, some like he was Saturday Night Live, and he was really funny. Yeah, okay. he was very funny. Sort of um, should... in Avengers. It, yeah. it just it feels like the same broy stuff we see yeah. that you know all the time. So I mean, I'm hoping it's good, but my expectations are pretty low. We, we should mention this is this is written by by at least five different screenwriters. Uh, oh two, no, two, two, excuse me, two, two, one of whom is Rob McKittrick, who wrote the 2005 film Waiting. This is the director feature directorial debut of Jeff Tomsick, who has seemingly been directing comedy specials and television shows. Are they running out of first time direct male directors to give a movie to yet? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Oh, I don't know. I'm certain that there are some mediocre well, white dudes but, around. Yeah. But you need a white male director to tell the story of the white men. I mean, come on. Play tag. They're <laughs> exactly. men. Um. Women just can't understand that. I mean, it's we'll cause... be on this later, but Pacific Rim, another one. These guys getting these big budget, you know, feature oh, budgets yeah. for their first time out. My God. Exactly. I will say, I will say, screw the men in this movie. It's got Leslie Bibb in it, who I think is a comedic genius that we don't give enough credit yep. to. So at least she'll, she'll be good. Like, I know that. And I think Isla Fisher can be yes, very good. Yeah. She's always so. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, this comes out June 15th. It does. Uh, another comedy that uh, we got a trailer for this week was The Spy Who Dumped Me with uh, sorry, Kate McKinnon, uh, Mila Kunis, and um, Kristen, who's that other person that's in it? It's fucking Justin Thoreau <laughs> because of course... Fucking, of course he would be here. That magnificent son of a bitch. Who can wear the hell out of a tuxedo. As I say, Mm. as I say about everything I watch with that man that hurts my soul, he's lucky he's okay. (laughs) Because if he wasn't, I'd have have left years ago. Uh, Well, this movie is about Audrey and Morgan, best friends who un wittingly become entangled in an international conspiracy when one of the women discovers the boyfriend who dumped her was actually a spy named Justin Thoreau who wears the hell out of a tuxedo. I'm assuming this is just going to be an extended version of the international assassin episode from The Leftovers, right? I'm counting on it. Yes, like a big version of that. That would be great. This movie is written and directed by Susanna Fogel. Um, She actually co-wrote it with David Iserson. Um, Susanna Fogel did uh what is she chasing life which was an abc family series um the only film she's made is a 2014 film called life partners yes so so some women do get you know i mean it's not technically her big 
screen debut, but pretty close. And I don't know. You guys saw the trailer. Okay, I saw the trailer. I saw the trailer for this. I remember when they announced the plot for this movie. And last year. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that sounds really cute. But then nothing ever came of it. So I figured they never made the movie. And then I saw this trailer. And I was like, okay, I'll watch it. I did not look at cast list before I watched this movie. So yeah, I didn't know Justin Theroux was there until he showed up, and I was like, well, of course he's here. Why wouldn't he be here? Why didn't I expect him to play hot, sexy, spy, possibly douchey, horrid boyfriend? Like, I should have I should have known, really. Um, I think we all talked about it early, before we recorded, that it looks like Spy. Um, mm-hmm. which, which was I, very funny. Which I mm-hmm. love Spy. I think Spy is really good. The trailer, though, may, did not help sell this movie. I liked that they went with trying to make it look like a James Bond movie at the beginning. Yes, And I that was kind funny. of wish that had stayed the course, because as soon as you get the moments of them, of Kate McLacunas interacting, it just really played like a subpart. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't like trailers that end with extended, that almost feel like they're just letting them improv a line so like the whole kate mckinnon and mila kunis tied to uh being interrogated and then them confessing to to weird things a i was like okay is that an intentional reference to the goonies um which i'm okay with um but b it just felt like for riffarama like they're just letting them improv and i was not for it but let's say it with me now oh i'm gonna go see it. of course you are so i just wanted to throw in too with the it's actually also a play on a james bond title which yes. was the spy who loved me so kim well, what did you think full disclosure I, I i actually did openly chuckle at the minion porn reference at the very <laughs> end i i don't know why that actually worked for me but <laughs> That was funny. I, I, agree. I and then she's like, and now I'm getting really weird advertised. <laughs> <laughs> I I actually I just watched it this morning. I flipped it on. I wasn't really thinking what I was turning on. I spent the entire time going, okay, who was Kristen seeing in here? I'm going to <laughs> I'm going. Did Oscar Isaac do something that I missed? My mom, my mom, my mom's my mom's guess when I told her, I'll guess who showed up in this trailer, and I described the plot for her, and she's all Army Hammer. I was all, oh God, that's good. No. <laughs> I I'm could totally it, yeah. see that. This this subpar comedy thing jumped out to me a lot. I just all the the running and yelling, and it's like okay, okay, you know, great, awesome. But it's like I I saw Bad Moms too this Christmas. I don't you know don't necessarily need that again. It's I I hadn't thought of the spy comparisons until after, and I did you know have no expe- expectations going into that and came out loving it. So I'll hold out some hope. Yeah, yeah. That comes out. That comes out August third. August third. Before the Oscar Isaac movie. Oh, the road is good. He is good. He's trying. He wants that number one spot. Um, He's a four right now. He's a nice. He's plotting. Yeah. Um, Okay. So then we had. We'll we'll just we'll come around to the documentary in a second. But we had a trailer for a new thriller. Under the Silver Lake, which stars Andrew Garfield. Uh, the plot summary it centers on a man named Sam who becomes obsessed with the strange circumstances of a billionaire mogul's murder and the kidnapping of a girl, which is his neighbor. And so that is um, Andrew Garfield, Riley Keogh, 
Uh, I can't remember who else is in it. I saw Ricky Lindholm. Uh, Topher Grace. And, uh, uh, Andrew Garfield is hit or miss. He is. Um, he is very hit or miss. It's really the luck of the draw with him. Because, you know, I refuse to watch Hacksaw Ridge. I'm pretty sure it was good. And I'm pretty sure people enjoyed it. And I'm pretty sure his performance was great. But um, he's really hit or miss. I think his career took a hit after the Spider-Man movies. Um, and, you know, he decided to go violence and, you know, then he did Hacksaw Ridge. Um, Which it's hard to tell. If he was going to be nominated that year, he should have been nominated for Silence right. and not for Hacksaw Ridge. Mm-hmm. But Right. And I think, you know, it, it's really, his career is really, I don't know, you just don't know. Because I feel like I don't know where I would place Andrew Garfield. Like, you know, you see uh, Army Hammer, like, you know where they belong in film. I don't know if I'm making sense, but you know what works for them. And I feel like Andrew Garfield is still trying to figure out what works and what doesn't mm-hmm. for his career. So he's just trying everything. Mm-hmm. This this is the new one from uh, David Robert Mitchell who did It Follows. Yes. Which I liked It Follows the first bit, and then I thought about it like the next day, and then I saw it again. I was like, wow, this movie's really just okay. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's not great. Um, I know people that go to bat for that movie. Um, that's one I think suffered from festival hype. And this just seemed like the Big Lebowski slammed into Inherent Vice. And they just are working. Like, I'm I'm all LA set conspiracy film um, with, with morons, but... <laughs> Um, I just feel like this movie has been done. I was like, it's just, it's a modern day inherent vice where you have Andrew Garfield's kind of like stoner idiot who think that the universe is leaving him clues or this girl is leaving him clues to find her disappearance. And I kept thinking the, the movie would be really great. And I'm just, I'm sorry if I spoil this from the trailer, but it would be really great if at the end of the day, the, the guy who says maybe she just fucking left like maybe she didn't want to hang out with you anymore turns out to be true like i love the concept Mm -hmm. i would love it if if this is like some sort of comment on white men thinking that like everything is laid out just for them to see Um, (laughs) you could have just spoiled that that. (laughs) Uh, honestly it, it could be that's that's actually i guess i'm the most intrigued by this uh because i've i've soaked film neo noirs basically um, and it's quite obvious that they're going for a more comedic, like you're saying, Big Lebowski. It's a, a more comedic angle on it. But I'm willing to go along with it just to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I like Andrew Garfield enough, and I like the... I mean, I agree with what you're saying, Valerie, about Andrew Garfield being just like, you really can't peg him as like, oh, he's going to be good in this type of movie or not. Um, I, but yeah, I agree with you. I don't know what, what this mystery is. But it's resolved. So this this just really feels like I I was watching it thinking oh it's Thomas Pynchon this is just crying of lot forty nine if anybody's read that book then you should kind of know where I'm thinking if you have it go up your mind uh, it's really weird but it comes <laughs> out June twenty second in case anyone's curious and it's eight twenty four so. and you know I mean every studio puts out good movies and not good movies mm-hmm. so it doesn't it, guarantee quality but kind of puts out like most of the good movies they tend to nail it yeah. So it felt like an A twenty four movie. Yes. It totally did. Yes, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree. All right, and then another trailer that we got this week, and this is the last one we're going to talk about to my neighbor, which oh. premiered at Sundance. It is 
Um, it is a document that explores the life lesson and legacy of Mr. Rogers. Now, I'm going to start off by saying that when I was a kid, my mom didn't let us watch Mr. Rogers because he annoyed her. So I have absolutely <laughs> no feelings of nostalgia toward him. I think that what he did was great, and I think he's a one person, and I will definitely see this film. But I'm not going to have any sort of an emotional attachment to it that other people are going to have. So I'm going to sit back and I'll talk about it. So I'm I'm kind of somewhat similar to you in that I did watch Mr. Rogers and I found him to be somewhat boring as a child. I watched him in Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. Sesame Street was kind of more of my thing. Um, I think my problem was is that Mr. Rogers, I think, works better on older children than younger ones because the pups <laughs> freaked me out. Because they weren't like, they weren't like puppets. They were, they were, <laughs> yes, they were frightening puppets. And everything was very slow and very relaxed. And I was just like, dude, no, let's go hunt for a bird. Like, I need some, um, so it wasn't, it wasn't really working for me. But I do think that as an adult now, I hate what the Mr. Rogers show did in terms of promoting, you know, unity amongst people, all of the themes that he stood for. And by Morgan Neville, who made twenty. Yes, he won an Oscar, won Oscar for it. For, I am all for for this. I think that this will be right. This is great. If anybody saw um uh, the Big Bird documentary um a couple years ago, that I like think that and this will like make me just a blithering you know idiot. So I'm I'm ready for it. <laughs> See, it tapped into feelings of nostalgia I didn't know I had. Um, because I watched it. I watched it regularly. Um, I, I think like you said, Chris, kind of that before. Some, I remember watching it plenty, enjoying it fine, you know, but not you know, too too much about it. And I was watching that trailer, and I was just a mess by the end of it. Very rarely do I have trailers that get me going like that. It was it's it was just so sweet, and it just everything about it, and it was just I welled up. Like, I I think I had similar feelings of nostalgia the way I felt when I saw this Robin trailer. Yes. I was just, you know, I wow because I, I used to watch Mr. Rogers religiously um because I'm allowed to watch anything else except for public access um television and so I learned a lot and I just remember him being so warm and kind and when he would say goodbye I'd be waving goodbye like goodbye and all that stuff and so um it's just interesting to see more of the show and how it changed up and how um you know his military go on for as long as it did because Mr. Rogers was on like well into the 90s right. you know so 2001 it was kidding. on to 2001 it was that on late. until 2001 yeah it ran for I wow. think about 50 years that's, a, that's amazing wow yeah. so I think it's gonna hold weight for a lot of people I wish I saw that Sundance but my head was so packed I, I just didn't have the time to see it yeah, I, I grew up with Mr. Rogers like everybody. I did watch him religiously also, and, and he was like my best friend, basically. That's what oh. I uh, So, yes, I got choked up watching this trailer. And, and like, actually, I was watching, we're all getting set up. I was just like, I call myself down before, <laughs> before I talk about this. Um, <laughs> and and uh, it, it looks like a great film. And I mean, because Mr. Rogers is kind of used by some conservative pundits of being like, oh, you're, he's one that made all of you millennials feel special. And I was just like, yeah, he did, actually. Yes, he said, like, you are a good person because of the person that you are. And that's really valuable for small children. Thank you, Bill O'Reilly. Rogers is a goddamn saint. <laughs> I will say that my introduction to Mr. Rogers was actually Mr. Robinson's neighbor. 
Yes, I was gonna say that's kind of it for me. So it's June eighth, by the way. It does. Before I forget. Yeah, yeah. But I just I, I wish that I had had that connection. It's it's really too bad that my mom was just like, nope, he's annoying. You're gonna watch Star Wars instead. How dare your mother? <laughs> Literally, that was what happened. So, <laughs> so. anyway, all right, so. Moving on from the trailers, uh, so last week there was a question about franchises, and this week we had a follow-up question from at Nanita Gilder, I think I'm Nanita saying that Gilder. right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so she was saying, um, it was about franchises and will they ever end, it was whether franchises will ever come to a conclusion, like, will a franchise have an actual ending that closes off the story, or just go on in per- perpetuity, so... Are you saying, will the Avengers actually have an have ending where they don't yeah. make any other Avengers movies? Like, this is the end of the Avengers story, yeah. No. Or, yeah. No. no. Call me a hard and jaded cynic, but no. It's as long as people keep seeing these movies, big budget, the, the big studios will keep making them. Because, I mean, Marvel's plotted out how many years in advance? Uh, I got to 2020. Question, will, will they die? So, say that people stop going to see these films. Will there ever be an actual conclusion to the film? Well, it just like peter out into the end, and then we'll get a reboot, you know, another 20 years down the line. Star Wars episode 33. Everybody's way too old to do this anymore. I mean, yeah. tell me now, honestly. Uh, as long as people pay their money, no, sadly. Because, I mean, you know, who, who, they're doing, they're, they're rebooting things that not even people, and who asked for a reboot? Mm-hmm. Nobody and, asked to see Tomb Raider again. They didn't. And if they can't do it with the original mm-hmm. franchise, offs. So, I, you know, we're seeing the supposedly bunch of people die. And we still have the other cast, like, in hand. So, you know, we're just... Oh, yeah, whatever. There's there's going to be a transfer force, though. Yeah. We're moving expensive wave of Marvel to the uh, people they've done when they were smarter and cheaper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. um... It, it, will it ever die out? I, I just don't think... I, I don't know. Um, because you see, you have things like the movie fans and expect us to meet it with applause. And then when it flops, they write op-eds about how millennials don't go to the movies anymore. Like, mm-hmm. of course, because nobody wants to see that. Like, yeah. I mean, do they really, you know, I as I saw the article from Scott uh, Mendelson, Panther being this financial juggernaut nightmare for Hollywood. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen that, but yeah. being, you know, this, you know, financial juggernaut. And it's like, it made me think, because he was really adamant about how Black Panther made films like Tomb Raider and Red Sparrow for box office. And it's like, no, films were probably destined to fail anyway. Jennifer Lawrence and people don't go to the movies to see video game movies anymore because it's in their heads that those films aren't good anyway. And Tomb Raider just sort of proved everyone right once again. So it's like, I was getting to it. totally forgot. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But I guess what I was saying is there's a certain expect. There has to be a certain level of expectation that at some point the franchise thing is going to go downhill. But where would that leave Hollywood? That would leave them so depressed and and sort of being like well you know where will we get ideas but there's like a ton of people with creative ideas that you're not tapping into you know because 
for whatever reason. Because yeah. Disney Disney lives off of book adaptations and franchises. I don't think are they making anything else that's original? No. No. But they mm-hmm. are living high on the hog from Star Wars and, and, and Marvel and it's almost like a monopoly when you think about it. Yeah. You got one company making the majority of the funds. Right. And well, but that's where we need to be supporting films from studios like A24 exactly. and Blumhouse and cuz I love their model and you know Neon now maybe I don't know. <laughs> that's that's a little bit of problem like sure. but um but you know some of these these more uh, independent type of studios that really foster these original stories audiences need to be going and seeing those movies. I, I'm not saying don't go see the Marvel movie. I'm going to see Infinity War. Of course I am. But, you know, but supporting films like Under the Silver Lake and, you know, these other things that we need to show. No, there is an audience for this and we're not just going to wait until it comes on TV and, you know, we want to see these films. You know, people keep asking for original stories and then they don't go to the movies to see them. So. What what disturbs me is how it's spreading to TV as well. I mean, I was looking at, so I mean, we have, you know, the much-hyped Roseanne reboot. I, this season alone, I can think of a Magnum P.I. reboot and a Cagney and Lacey reboot coming to whatever basic network basic cable network they're on. It's, and they're rebooting Charm, too. Hey, Charmed, oh, yeah. yeah. Mad About You has been talked about. Murphy Brown is happening. Yeah, that it's television is going to be the same thing as it was when I was ten years old. I mean, <laughs> yeah, what year is this? <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. The time machine worked. Um, <laughs> but think, but who do we see doing these reboots? It's the networks, the mm-hmm. standard networks, because they don't want to put in the money to exploring shows that exactly. are untested, that are new ideas. And you know, it's only very streaming rare services are doing that. Exactly, streaming services and some of the some of the cable networks. FX does some, you know, AMC they tries do. stuff. It doesn't always work, but they try, you know. And but that's the point is that they're trying it, you know. And yeah, it it needs to be that way with the studios too. So, um, all right. So we have another question or topic of discussion <laughs> that needs to be addressed, and that is. <laughs> Class films and the film critic. <laughs> now, Kristen tried to burn down Twitter this week. <laughs> Kristen broke story. film Twitter. She <laughs> broke it. She, she took did. a mash to it. Completely. <laughs> I lit it on fire. Yeah. <laughs> you, you just let us know kind of what happened this week. I, I was telling everybody. What did you do? I, exactly. Yeah. Kristen, what have you done? I was having a Taylor Swift moment. Look what you, look what you made me do, damn it. Um... So, I, I was telling everybody, I bet you all miss when I'm just the girl that talked about Oscar Isaac all the time. Um, so, I still do that, but now I intermittently uh, burn down film Twitter with uh, stuff. So, okay. I was subtweeting, which is probably not the best place to start. I was subtweeting <laughs> about how there was a site that shall remain nameless that had... Con- brought up doing a historical review of movies that were less than 10 years old. One of them was Ant-Man. And I was just kind of sharing my thoughts on Twitter about how we're seeing this new crop of critics um, who are not feeling like, A, 
the historical element for them is something a decade old. So their memory is, well, this movie came out 10 years ago. So obviously, we need to look at it within a historical context, how its legacy is played out with a movie that's a decade, less than a decade old. You just, you can't. Um, and then it turned into me saying that this, you know, the criticism at this point, we're losing this knowledge of film history. You know, people are bringing up right back into franchises and they're not either unaware that a movie has been remade several times or they're not understanding how it's changed with the different political structures of, of when the original came out. Like, I wanted, I just wanted more people to know film history. And I, of course, I, I was not advocating that you need to watch every movie ever made. As critics, we will never completely know our field. We're always learning something new. Um, every movie we see is opening us up to something something that we didn't know. And it's our job at that point to know something about current events, you know, or or it's it's the background that has made film the way it is that would make this movie relevant. It's up to us to kind of know the, the basics. And this extends to both internal cinema, to minority cinema. I mean, I, I want people to be more involved. I know that when I write articles, and if you've read my stuff, you know that I always try to include historical context. Why are movies from the 80s inherently misogynist? Well, this was why. Um, and, and how does that play differently into movies today? I mean, I'll try to, to look at that. Um, and apparently, some critics felt I was, quote, an elitist gatekeeper <laughs> um, for daring to uh-huh. for daring to ask that people especially like who are who are younger than us at this point who were coming at movies saying i didn't know that this was a remake and i don't really know anything about it but here's my take on this movie and you're really not doing your job as a critic yes your job as a critic is to tell whether a movie is good or bad but you also need to know why it's good or bad based on the history of cinema and how it plays into our history today why is a movie like red sparrow terrible for women today in comparison to, you know, movies of the past. I, the greatest misconception I get from people who don't know film history is, well, movies from, you know, the studio era were all sexist because women were seen as this. Actually, if no. you're looking at movies just very casually, you might say that. That's not true if you actually are looking at film history and, and watching films from that time period. I just want people to be more educated about film Apparently yeah, that made me a dick. You're awful. You're the worst. I know. Here, here's my thing. So a critic, I mean, if you go by the definition of what a critic is, it's someone who judges the merits um, of a film, of a book, of art, whatever art you're talking about. But essentially a critic is a judge. And if you look at, I mean, what does that mean to be a judge? And if you look at the court system, okay, You've got your judges, and they need to know the law. Not just the law as it's currently written, and to just look at this particular case based on this sheet of paper in front of me. They have to look at precedents that have gone before them as far as you know how this law has been applied before. Um, they look at all those types of things. They have to know some history. And then you've got someone like the People's Court judge, <laughs> who's just, you know, TV just making some noise and like, oh, well but she has bad hair, so I'm going to vote against her, you know? And to me, that's kind of what this is. It's like you're talking about critics, and then you're talking about film writers. They're To me, they're different things. And someone who does not bother to learn film history, does not bother to 
contextualize things based on the societal history uh to me that's not a critic that is just someone who's writing about films that are made now and it's a totally different type of approach and it's not it's not that writing about films just from today is bad it just i don't feel like you should be able to call yourself a critic if that's your approach yeah well i also i think that the the climate of Again, it's, it seems like thanks to social media, that whole thing sort of changed. Um, you know, criticism, film criticism started out as a written medium. And now it's, it's you know, transferred over to audio and video. But I think what a lot of it lacks is in-depth knowledge. It's like a lot of people, they review films and they speak their opinion, but they don't go in-depth to you know the technical aspects or the performances or incorporate film history or anything like that they just tell you their opinion on what they thought and they give their score and now they're a movie critic and i think that that's sort of unfair um but i also think people you know there there's there's studies that say different there's studies that say people are watching more videos and then there are some that says people still read, read you don't know where the line is but i think a male they've been able to sort of capitalize on this movement where all uh, their thoughts on the movie for five minutes and boom they get five hundred thousand uh uh views and going to you know they're going to different uh events and things that i can't get into um mm-hmm. you know moderating but, panels on things right and but i you know i'm still working on well, I think, too, it, it brings up what I was bringing up, too, is the concept of Valerie, Valerie mentions that a white male critic thing, and it, and it is. I think a lot of the I brought up was, it's why it's one of many reasons, I did not say this was the only reason, even though that's how people wanted to interpret it. This is one of many reasons I think a lot of critics write for free. You can just be some schmo on, on the internet who has an opinion on a movie, and, and therefore you're a critic. You know, there's no... There's no technical writing skill anymore that's applied. There's no film history. And, and I was saying, a lot of these white male critics that are writing don't know feminist film history, you know, African-American yeah. film history. And so we're surprised when they're getting these, you know, reviews out there about how Tomb Raider sucks because Alicia V. Kander's states aren't as great as Angelina Jolie's or Black Panther is racist because it doesn't avoid people. You're getting all these hot takes from white male critics just because there's not this awareness of how film history has changed for those subgroups and I was well and they don't right. care about those subgroups because they don't look like them so. right and I, well, I think it, it leads to a lot of issues where you're getting knowing film history because we know we have to I think there's no delivery anymore again you can go to WordPress and start up your own right. website for free blogger letter a ton of uh, outlets that you can sign up for where you can write your opinion and get it out there and if it's salacious enough and if it has a clickbait title it'll 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 move you know it'll it'll move across uh social media networks and um i also you know think that it has to do with you know hiring at larger outlets where you know there are so many women uh and with, women of color in particular are just freelancers they aren't hired um, as full-time staff to continually, you know, crank. So you're going to see, I've seen um, white males go from just blogging on their own site to writing for major websites. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this person has no, you know, it's still the good old boy system, it seems like. Mm-hmm. And 
really annoys me because it black people, but sometimes that's all I get when I open up my email address and they're like, Can you write about this and this? And it's like, Well, I can also write about, you know, Betty Davis films and I can write about Bridget Bardot and, and you know, those type of things too. Um, but it doesn't seem like you have to have a history more, especially if you're a white male. They're, they're, the qualifications are so different for them. Uh, and they always have been. And they still are. It's just now that we have the element of social media that's involved that can move quicker. That's all. That's what yeah. it seems like to me. Yeah. And it's, I, I'm really bothered, I think, by the number of uh, particularly white male editors that, and I'm not going to name names. But a lot of guys who are who are white male editors and are actually editors of very fairly powerful film websites came out incredibly defensive mm-hmm. of this attitude of like, what do you mean we have to? Part of it is is possibly a, a, a realization of their own failings, but also the failings of their own websites and the fact that they are essentially paying paying people for clicks, as as we're talking about, and they're not valuing real critical discourse. They're not valuing different perspectives. They claim that they are, but when push comes to shove, they're not actually hiring the women of color, the people of color, the the uh, people with education, you know, just period, people with education, with cinematic education and a deeper cinematic. Um, and the, the, this is not something that they particularly care about. And when they're told that they don't care about it, they're like, well, but, 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 the, but this is, oops. Did we lose audio? I'm- Sorry, guys. I'm, microphone. <laughs> I'm in my excitement. I am plugged by microphone. Um, there. What was I saying? Yes, mediocre white male editors. Um, they're they're saying that you know this this is just this is just advice for film critics. This isn't a requirement, you know. And and it's it's sort of like, well, what are we actually asking people for? That you mm-hmm. that you know you watch more than a, than films that were made five or ten years ago. That you actually consider uh, classical Hollywood, you actually actually consider film movements in other countries. That you consider world cinema, that you consider African cinema and East Asian cinemas and all kinds of things, and that you you have a kind of a breadth of experience within that. And that when you want to claim to write about certain things, you have to actually go and do your research and look at other uh, films and look at theorists. I mean, the the it suddenly makes sense to me why when you say to a dude the male gaze they don't seem to know what you're talking about right like they claim that they do i'm just like well have you read have you even read laura mulvey's essay and if you have have you read any of the offshoots of that any of the further discussions of it uh and a lot of them don't seem to know it they don't seem to know what they're talking about and so it isn't even that you're asking people to you ask people to have experience, which should be prerequisite for any kind of critical commentary. Well, uh, it, if you're holding yourself up as a critic, yes, it's like I, yeah. for for the love of, I mean, I have, you know, I I came to film criticism through. I started out and still am historian. I mean, it's people who are saying if you are going to get out cinema did not start before 1970 cinema did not start in 1977 i have different places where george lucas got his inspiration for star wars i it's i found the this entire topic of conversation so disheartening because there is just 
so much there. And it's like I have been up to my ears in film history since before I can remember. And it's like, no, this is not a new medium. If you are claiming, if you are studying the medium, if you are, you know, holding yourself up to somebody who is even qualified to be writing, you should have a knowledge. But as I completely agree with how Valerie started this discussion, it's like right now with with social media, it has turned into any jerk is a blogger, any jackass with a cell phone is a photographer. It has cheapened the medium to such a point people stop trying and have just gotten to the point where we're just searching for clicks. Yeah. Well, well, one I, of the things that a I, lot of straight white men have stopped trying. I think that that's really important. That because they don't need to try. It, exactly. And you know, all of the things that we're talking about, I've seen a lot more women, a lot more people of color, a lot more queer critics, etc., who realize to knowing their shit, to knowing what is canon, and to know canon has all kinds of problems and it's been shaped by white males for years. But the reason why you learn canon is so you get what is missing. Exactly. So you can you can do that kind of analysis. You can understand this is in canon. So why isn't this? Why are you talking about these films? Mm-hmm. And it's it's incredibly important. And I, I did just want to build off of what you're saying about libraries and stuff. Streaming like service that is connected to libraries. Most most major libraries have it right now. Um, particularly for many film critics who live in major cities, you probably have access to it. You can watch most of the Criterion Collection on this. You know, you can watch Rashomon, you can watch Kurosawa's, you can watch Bergman, you can watch all kinds of things. So you can at least have a basis for some of the these films, whether or I not mean, you like them. We <laughs> well, what- I mean, my, I mean my, my gap, I freely admit, is the 1970s and 90s. I didn't see Die Hard until I was in, past college. Oh, see, I saw all that stuff in the theater as a kid. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but one of my things was, like, you know, I finally sat down and watched the movie Lawrence of Arabia, like, 15 years ago, is because Spielberg always talks about how he watches mm-hmm. that movie every year. And, like, I love Spielberg. I want to watch some of the films that inspired him. He didn't just fall out of the sky and start making great movies. He learned from somewhere. He he studied this stuff. And so I where, where did he get that well, from? And a lot and of records are huge references on his sleeve. Mm-hmm. I mean, Scorsese talks about, you know, classic. I mean, you have these, these directors who owe their careers to film history. Why would you want to know what they're learning off of and using that as a resource? Sure. And I get a lot of sites are based on, you know, how many people come to visit. And I've been told by editors when I was writing a classic film column that the movies that I was picking were too niche and that I needed to pick at least classic films people had heard of. I get the fact that uh, that I think the demographics of most film sites is like males like 18 to 39. And you you need to have something that's going to attract them. But at the same time, if all we're doing is talking about Lawrence of Arabia, Citizen Kane, and like the searchers, you know, that's that's limiting in its own way. You know, you have to oh, yeah. open things up to talking about other, other you know, directors. You have to talk about the Dorothy Arsers, or you have to talk about, you know, the Paul Rosens, if we're talking actors, you know, people that you don't really know. Um, and, and there are huge resources for that available. So, yeah, I don't know. I just I just wanted to make, make film history a better place. And, well, one of the things... Exactly. Yeah. Well, one of the things, just to kind of wrap up this discussion, I'll, I'll give Kristen the final word, but I do want to say, I didn't, like I mentioned, I didn't watch Mr. Rogers growing up, but I watched Siskel and Ebert, and I watched Leonard Maltin. Mm-hmm. And Leonard Maltin, uh, a few years ago, had that series that was on the Reels channel, Secrets Out, 
And it was so great because he would do that. He would never heard of, didn't know it was this interesting. I want to go back and watch that. And it's like, that's what we need. We need to find, uncover these films that have been forgotten and and never fully explored and look at how they have informed what we have today. So final yeah. word and then we'll move on. Um, oh, sorry, Valerie, did you answer? I was going to say, I used to watch Siskel and Ebert religiously all the time. I thought they were hilarious. And My friend thought I, it was so weird for watching that show. <laughs> yeah, I never thought that I would be a film critic either, but Roger Ebert really did inspire a lot of what I, you know, a lot of you know how I how my reviews and things like uh, of that nature, but I just think that film history is important because you how can you write about now and if you don't know any that existed before? And I don't know why people call Kristen a gatekeeper. All she's asking is that you just know more. Yeah, but you know, know people, you know, it's that's not the same argument as oh well, if you don't like, uh, you know, if you don't like the, the Justice League, then you just don't get it and you're not smart. Like that's yeah. not the same thing. Um, this is, you know, that's just a movie and an opinion, uh, opposed to a prof- a whole profession that is based on knowledge. It's not like I have any move saying that if you didn't like my movie, then you just are a moron who likes stupid comic book movies. So, I mean, just, <laughs> right. uh, but no, in, in summation, um, I mean, I'm I'm a, a female who's in a wheelchair. Um, I need to know my film history so that I know what I can complain about, really, at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, I, I just I just brought it up because I, A, at the bare minimum, I want people to stop doing historical reviews about movies less than a decade old. Okay, bare minimum. If you do a historical that's at least 20, please, okay? And B, if you do hire somebody to write classic film columns, please ask them to at least know something about the movies they're talking about or the actors they're referencing or something so that I don't have to pull my hair out. Yeah. <laughs> and exactly. Angry <laughs> All right. Well, we are running a little long, but we do have some very quick movie review roundups that we're going to do. Um, so let's start with Kim and Valerie both saw Pacific Rim up. Tell us what you think. Why don't you start, uh... Valerie? Just a quick summation of the film, and then and then let us. I was going to tell Kim to go first, but um, (laughs) I just um, I know people weren't really fond of of the first Pacific Rim for whatever reason, but this film lacks heart. It really lacks anything of the first one, um, based on the way it treats its its characters, the the action that makes no sense, um, the. collateral damage it's just something about the film that really rubs me the wrong way i was really disappointed because i know that john boyega is a producer on the film and i was really disappointed at the casting that amara namani is some white blonde not, not some white brunette who looks just like daisy ridley and every other women woman of the star wars series i was disappointed in in that and Yes, John Boyega is great. Um, that's about it. I'm not a really huge fan of Scott Eastman. I don't think he should be doing films. Um, I think he looks pretty, but so I don't think he should be That's all, as Karen would say about Army Hammer, he just needs to shut up and look pretty. Just stand there. Just that's stand it. there. Exactly. Like he, you know, he looks pretty, but you know, to the franchise, it, it, you don't take your most beloved characters and then do nothing with them like you know your most beloved characters of the franchise and then do nothing that's like 
that's like you know going into the second Captain America movie and then killing Captain America and then expecting the to go forward like with characters that just aren't as interesting and aren't as fun and um Jaegers that aren't as interesting and character it, it, it's just not interesting it's a very big budget given to a first or second time director who is the white male and round and round we go there it is i hope that made sense because i'm still trying to process it <laughs> so disappointed. I mean, to jump right off of your last point there, I mean, Steve DeKnight, who directed and then was one of, I believe, four or five writers did it on the script. He is he's he's a Whedonverse alum, but I mean, I have been familiar with his work for a while in terms. Of, he's done he's done such great work on television, like with Spartacus and you know, a few other things that it was like, this was such just a disappointment. Now, I felt when I, I kind of, when I split myself in half, the person who was there for the big fighting robots, you know, when I, if I pulled myself back from my critic self, I was, I was okay with it. You know, I had fun, but just um, to go along with the treatment of the original characters, I mean, for to of too much spoilers, there was kind of a fridging, I thought. Just one particular character is killed off for nothing more than an emotional beat for the John Boyega character, which I thought was absolutely horrible that they would treat that character in such a way. That And I think I said in my review, in terms of writers, does not mean quality. And that script felt like such just a garbled mess to me uh it's they were trying to do so much and none of their threads quite went through there was a certain point there towards the end where they make one particular character a villain where i paused in the movie and was like where that where the hell did that come from it felt like it to me it screamed of a studio rewrite probably at the last minute thinking of how many hands were probably in that script that it was just completely like scott eastwood complete the movie was completely superficial superficially fun superficially pretty but beyond that well all right <laughs> I'm just gonna say I'm really glad that Guillermo del Toro stepped off of this project to do The Shape of Water. I think yeah. it sounds it's like a movie he that we didn't, It's a movie that we didn't need. Like we did not need this movie. The first one could have been fine, and you know we we just didn't we we didn't need it. Like well, I don't get I don't get the allure of of making films like that and fridging it your best characters and substituting them with people who don't matter people who you don't give a shit about like i i don't get it i, I don't yeah. get it and just oh, because john boyega is the lead that is, i'm not going to give him kudos because he's black movie sucks yeah i thought i thought he was great in the horrible movie to me he was the best part <laughs> yeah i mean he's the best part and and that's that's great it's he needs you know, something but, to like do you said, in between waiting for Oscar Isaac and BB-8. I mean, really. <laughs> oh, and, right. <laughs> and we are going to have a third one. Based that sequel baiting was just oh, ridiculous. Great. You know, there's yeah. a damn third one coming. Mm. But it'll be it'll it'll probably make a lot of money and 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 overseas and probably in Asia because mm-hmm. they they like films like that, and it's the reason why the first one was so successful. I, I just I don't know if Pacific Rim is going to do all that well. Um, because 
Hollywood and America has had a very huge problem with sci-fi in the last five years, especially anything that's not Star Wars or Star Trek or um, else is out there um, that's, you know, attached to huge temple. The, just known, think pe- the known temple properties. Right. I just think people aren't, aren't interested in, in that. You know, it's the reason why Annihilation went straight to Netflix overseas and why Cloverfield Paradox went straight to Netflix everywhere. It's like straight to Netflix is like the new straight to DVD. It's like, there it is. Um, but we'll see how it does in the box office. I, I don't think it's going to be Black Panther, but... Yeah. It you will know. give me porn parody titles to come up with for years. <laughs> all on that end. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, ladies. I'm going to jump a little bit out of the order that we've got established well, here. Do, yeah. Kristen, why don't you talk about fun? Okay, so um, I didn't go to the movies this weekend. Um, I was just tasked with reviewing a movie um, that I I already knew was out there. So I watched Final Portrait. Um, It's written and directed by Stanley Tucci, who I think is awesome. Um, And it's about um, the painter Alcometti played by Jeffrey Rush. Um, It's set in 64, I think, and how he is attempting to paint this portrait of a a uh, writer named James Lord, my adorable army hammer, um, and how, like, this three-day odyssey eventually turns into, like, a month of them trying to uh, create this painting. And it's fine. Um, it's, it's, I've watched this twice now. Um, I watched it once when I, I wanted to see it, and then I watched it the second time when I got to review it. And it's fine. Um, I, I think it's a really interesting commentary on the anxiety that comes from feeling like you have to create something amazing. Like, as a writer, I understood Jeffrey Rush's frustration and and his chronic distractions throughout the movie that he makes for himself. Um, It's um, an intriguing day-in-the-life type of movie about a a painter. It's him and Army Hammer have a lot of fun chemistry together because it's mostly Army Hammer playing the straight man. Um, He's just there to roll his eyes and look concerned and just sit and be beautiful. Um, this is what he made, I think, after Call Me By Your Name. So he's not, um, definitely, um, but he's not as magnetic as he is in that movie, um, but he's solid. Um, but really, it's it's Jeffrey Rush's movie. He's got a really great storyline with Tony Shalhoub, who plays his brother, and the story about his wife and his mistress is really interesting. But it's all just kind of basic interesting. You know, you're, you can watch it. It's an hour, it's an hour and 25 minutes without credits. And you'll be like, okay, that was that was a pleasant movie, but it's something that you won't remember come come year's end. Um, Army Hammer's made way better movies than this. Is not Call Me by Your Name. Um, this is not the worst thing he's made, but it's, I think it's far from his best work. Um, but it is an interesting movie if you're a fan of of um, painter films, you know, film biopics about uh, artists, or you want to see some sort of like dialogue driven. Um, examination of the creative process you know it's it's worth a look all right well thank you um lauren you got to see the death of stalin why don't you tell us a little bit about that one yes i got to see the death of stalin two two weekends ago uh when it first came out i think it's right now in limited release hopefully it will get a wider release shortly um it is the story the immediate aftermath of Stalin's death, Stalin died very, very suddenly. Uh, and it's about all of the people who are surrounding him and the passing of power from one person to another and all of the machinations going on between the various members of the Central Committee 
who are basically the ruling the ruling committee of Russia and the, the Soviet Union at that time. It is also a vicious satire. Uh, this is probably one of the funniest movies about the death of a dictator uh, that has ever been made. It's directed by uh, it's directed and written by Armando Iannucci, who also did. Um, uh, oh, he did Veep. Sorry. Uh, yes, so it's directed by uh, it's directed and written by Armando Iannucci, who also did. He's done Veep. He did The Thick of It. Um, and it's very much in that kind of milieu of being this um, very intense, funny, jokey, but also incredibly serious political satire because he's dealing with the um, the violence and the use of language in particular, the way that these men talk to one another about Stalin, about each other, about his death, the way that language changes as the ruler changes. Um, and it is, it's incredibly funny and incredibly terrifying at the same time. Steve Buscemi plays Khrushchev, but the most terrifying is Simon Russell Bill, who is playing Beria, who is the, um, the head of, basically the head of the Russian Secret Service, and the, the head of the Russian Secret Police, and he, it's, there's this push and pull going on between, uh, about who is going to really rule Russia, because the the next in line, basically, to Stalin's uh, seat is a very ineffective person, uh, played, unfortunately, by Jeffrey Tambor. Aww. <laughs> yes, it's, it's disappointing. He's great, uh, but it's very disappointing to see him in this. Um, but it's really very much about the, the two factions that develop between uh, Khrushchev and Beria and how this is all going to play out. And it plays out within like a couple of days. Stalin dies, and then within a couple of days, there has been this massive shift in power. Uh, it's, it's a brilliant film. It's a funny film. It is a very important film for our current political moment. And because so much of it is about this, this issue of language and the way that and the necessity for controlling language and how you talk about the people that are your enemies and the people that are your friends and how that shifts sometimes within a conversation. Uh, so yes, definitely go and see it if it is available in your city. If not, like, wait for it because it's very funny and it is very topical. Okay, shallow question coming from me. I've heard a particular, my particular favorite member of Monty Python who I've been name dropping the last couple of weeks is in it. Is he in it? <laughs> He is in it. He plays Yay. Molotov, and he is hilarious. <laughs> he is, uh, he's a joy. He's a joy to watch. He actually has one of I best like short speeches in the entire film. It's a masterpiece of absurdist language. So awesome! Yeah, definitely go to see it for him. Definitely. <laughs> Excited, and I'm just gonna throw in a side note here that. Um, you're talking about knowledge of film history. Knowledge of history is important too to understand and 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 appreciate some of these films. And I've heard some negative reviews from people about this this particular film. And it's like when you, you need to understand that to really appreciate this movie. So sorry, that's a little rant side note. Well, and and apparently this is very the actual events are very very close to what actually happened. I understand following yeah, the death so. of Stalin. So the the insanity of it, part of the insanity of it is because this is real. And yeah, you're kind of like, this has got to be a joke. And then you look at it and like, no, this isn't a joke. This isn't a joke at all. <laughs> Life is a joke, Lauren. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I'm going to wrap up with, um, so this, I saw 
a couple weeks ago, I got to see Unsane, which is in theaters this weekend. Uh, it's the new Steven Soderbergh film. Um, most people that are talking about two things. Claire Foy is awesome, and the whole movie was shot on the iPhone, which both of those are true. Um, the movie is basically Claire this woman who uh, recently gets Boston because she was trying to escape a stalker. She had a, a stalker that was just after her, and so she just up and left. Didn't even tell anybody that she was being stalked didn't really do much about it other than just move away so she's in the city she's scared to get to know people so she just kind of keeps to herself she's also kind of like just a cold person she's not a particularly warm person um but she's dealing with all this anxiety so she goes to um talk to a psychiatrist just trying to get a handle on this anxiety so they're having this session i want to set up a follow-up visit so the doctor's like great here's some standard medical forms to sit out in the lobby fill them out hand back to the nurse you can set up your appointment okay so she goes out there well when she turns the forms back in she has essentially voluntarily committed herself for a 72-hour psych hold because she didn't read the papers or ask enough questions, she doesn't realize this until they're checking her in and doing all this, you know, standard intakes. And she's there in the hospital that night. Something happens, and she ends up on it on a seven-day involuntary involuntary fifty-one fifty. And so then it's basically everything that's going on for this week that she's just trying to get through being in this psychiatric hospital. Um, and lots of things happen. She meets this guy who is played by Jay Farrow who is very, but he's he says that he's an undercover reporter that's there investigating insurance fraud uh, of people being committed just to siphon off their insurance money. Um, and then she meets this nurse who she says is the stalker that she fled from in, in her town. And so it's like just this kind of crazy thing. And some of it really works well. It's like, but part of the problem with the movie is that it just shows its cards too early. You know exactly, it's like pretty much right away. And so it it really takes out, you're in a psychiatric hospital and you take out the psychological elements of it. So that was that was yeah. disappointing um, because it could have been really fascinating. Do you know Temple's in it, but she's basically just there. She shows up in scenes just when they need her to do something to drop that moment forward. And so that was not really cool. I didn't like that. But Claire Foy is great. One of the things that I love about her, going back to that conversation we had earlier about the tropes about women, she is kind of cold. But the way that they present her and the way that she performs the character, it's like you kind of don't really care about that and you're still rooting for her. You still want good things to happen to her, even though she's kind of like, I don't know I'd really be friends with this person in real life. But there's just something about her that makes that that characterization that personality trait really works so the iphone thing is is often interesting although sometimes it really does feels like it's very gimmicky but most of the time you feel like you're watching this story play out through like closed circuit tv through hidden cameras that kind of thing and so sometimes it's really fun sometimes it's just like annoying just just pull back and do a full shot here you know but so overall um i enjoyed the film I think uh, I gave it a two and a half out of four stars uh, in my award circuit review I I think there are a lot of things that were kind of missed opportunities it really feels like two movies rolled into one um, and either one of them on their own could have been really fascinating but together it just kind of falls apart a little bit so I think it's definitely worth watching I think there's a lot of good great 
amazing cinema either. Yeah, so. I, I think Steven Soderbergh is like, I don't know. I can't even say he's hit or miss. His films are mostly miss to me. I mean, I give him props for putting women at the forefront, but I don't know if he writes them well. So, Well, he didn't write the script for this film. Um, I'm trying to remember who did. It was... Uh, sorry, hang on one second. Um, but I, I mean, I agree with you. He, he Men are not usually greatly developed like I'm thinking of Julia Roberts in the Oceans movies or you're um, thinking about Haywire <laughs> right <laughs> yeah I mean I'm a big fan of Soderbergh but um, yeah one of the things that I do appreciate about him is his willingness to try new things yeah I do appreciate that movies he's got a trilogy there each of those movies looks like a very different film you know they have different aesthetics they have different you know, different pacing, different, lots of things. Uh, with this movie, I mean, there's definitely some experimental stuff going on that's that's cool, very intriguing, and that's why I say, like, people should watch this. It's def- there's definitely stuff there. You should you should check this out because it's not a it's not a total disaster of a movie. Um, there are some things that I was just like, why did that happen? But then there are other parts where I was like, ooh, I'm I'm. I heard um, Claire Jackson is bad. Her performance is a good accent. It comes and goes a little bit. Like, there are times where she'll say certain things where you're like, oh, that's the queen. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there are parts where she does do it very well. But, yeah, it does creep in there sometimes. And it's like, oh, dear. So. Well, it's, it's not as bad as Oscar Isaac's Annihilation. God damn it. That accent's never going <laughs> to. It's not going to go away. It's a jump. Not as worse. It's a jump in <laughs> off of her previous yeah. discussion just to say i mean i'm hearing experiment it's you know in a world of franchises and reboots we should be encouraging experimental you know ideas and strategies and you know new ideas so you know it might not be the best but it's like go out and go see it exactly yeah that's what i say about that and then uh just to wrap things up i did say that i would share my thoughts on isle of dogs which is in uh, limited release this week. I think it goes wide next week, so hopefully more people will have a chance to see it if they're interested in it. Um, now, I don't want to spend too much time because we already talked about the cultural appropriation aspects. I will say that that is very problems with. However, that being said, I thoroughly enjoyed the story. It's a lot. It's funny. The whole thing, well, pretty much the whole thing takes place on like island called Trash Island, but yet they're still beautiful about it, which, you know, it's something that I think very few people, Wes Anderson is one of them, can pull off because of the aesthetics that he presents in his films. So I I thought the voice performances were great. I agree that it's weird that you've got Brian Cranston voicing a dog that is from Japan, but um but he's he's just good, you know, and, and so I enjoyed it as a movie, separate from the problems that it does present. So there you go. All right. Anything anybody wants to add? Uh, what do we all it's have? It's still on- possible to enjoy a problematic movie. Yes. <laughs> it is exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. What's everyone doing this week? Anything fun? I really don't know. Um, I've seen everything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I well, not everything, but I guess I should see Unsane and Isle of Dogs. But I feel like I won't be adding anything to the discussion that hasn't already. So I'm not. I'm not really sure what's supposed to be coming out. Anybody have any ideas? Next week Ryan. is ready. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so I'll be seeing that and I'll be unleashing the discourse on that. Um, it's probably going to be very ugly, so I need to go ahead and prepare myself, especially if I don't like the film. Um, you know, because of course it's like the Black Panther for white folks. Um, not, they'll all be no, excited. No, 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 of course. According to the According to the article, you know, it's 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 your time. It's our right. time. Gamers yeah. time. Black exactly. Panther for gamers, yes. <laughs> Black Panther for gamers. And um wow, okay. So I got um, what do you guys I, say? I, the only thing I have on top this week is uh Ready Player One on Monday. So you seeing this week? I'm having... not I am not seeing Ready Player One. I, no one no one can take <laughs> She gets to go see classy movies. Uh <laughs> Yeah, the Tribeca pre-screenings are starting, and so I'm going to be seeing... I'm not certain exactly which ones I'm going to this week. i a bunch of things this week. But I also can't talk about them, because Tribeca has weird embargo rules. Right, yeah. Uh, Kim? Uh, Ready Player One on Monday, so I will be there. Um, Le- the Leisure Seekers on Tuesday, and personally considering my Bulldog Drummond movie marathon. Nice! <laughs> <laughs> this week, I think, uh, what am I um, The Winning Season, the Helen Hunt movie about the high school basketball team. Um, so I'm seeing that on Monday, and then I'm using my own movie pass to see Ready Player One. To me, to a movie that's all about 80s nostalgia that has no references to Steven Spielberg because he intentionally didn't want references. He's like the icon of the 80s, so whatever. Um, <laughs> so, so, so you uh, can guess what our movie review will be next week. <laughs> right. Do any of you guys live in New York? No, nope. maybe yeah. more in, more in maybe you can take me with you to the uh, vendor no. one screen screening, so I don't have to pay for it. Lauren's the only New Yorker; she'll be at Tribeca. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I you should see me at Tribeca as well. But if you're not going to see Play, <laughs> I wouldn't worry about it. I'll yeah. go see it. <laughs> I will see you at Tribeca then. Like, yeah, I won't worry about it. Yeah. All right. Um, okay, we'll wrap it up this extra long so fun Valerie having you with us today why don't you tell everyone where they can follow you and everyone's again first of all workout and I so badly wanted to talk about Tomb Raider because I have negative thoughts on that movie but you can find me at Valerie Complex one word on Twitter and Instagram Valerie underscore complex uh, that's Valerie with an E not an R-Y not an A complex and thank you guys for having me I really had fun Thanks so much. Yeah, it's been great. Um, Lauren, where can they follow you? Business. Kim? At kpier624. At Jeremy's underscore film. Great. And I am at Karen M. Peterson. And just a couple of little... Uh, of course, you can always follow the podcast on Twitter, Citizen Dame Pod, and on Facebook. Fa- well, I don't know. Do we want to advertise yeah, Facebook it, anymore? Yeah, the, the stuff goes um, on there, so yeah. <laughs> yeah facebook.com slash citizen dame um of course the podcast is on podbean podbean.com we have our website citizen dame pod there's so many dot coms and everything. also we just got added to tune stitcher all the and usual places on this uh website um we're gonna be doing our top citizen dame five favorite nostalgic movies in on so talking about some lady nostalgia Okay, yes. different yes. than yours, nostalgia. Um, and uh, Kim is also once we come up with a name for it, she's going to be sharing some classic film reviews on the site. So you guys will all that we will be throwing at you, whether you like it or not. Yes, and we're very excited about that. And of course, if you like the show, subscribe, rate, review, all of that. We love iTunes reviews and ratings. And also, if you really love the show, you can um, become a patron. You're allowed to patronize us is through Patreon. Patreon.com slash Citizen Dame. Citizen Dame Pod. 
Trend.citizen Dame. Thank you. Um, and we are just one one way from hearing all about Kristen's 50 favorite movie quotes and art coats, not quotes, <laughs> 50 favorite movie coats. And also, if we get to the next level, I am going to, for the very first time ever, when I will live tweet it. So you don't want to miss that, right? Um, so yeah, there you go. We thank you all for listening and have a great week. Before we attack each other and tear ourselves to shreds like a pack of maniacs, let's just open the sack first and see what's actually in it. It might not even be worth the trouble. I don't know. What do you see? I'm not sure. Maybe. Hi. A rancid apple core, two worm-eaten banana peels, a moldy rice cake, a dried-up pickle, tin of sardine, bones of pile, broken eggshells, an old smushed-up rotten gizzard with maggots all over it. Okay, it's worth it. (laughs) Oh, my God.